interesting and I think it's appropriate to think about that this morning to associate that breeze with the presence of the Holy Spirit the presence of God it is his creation and God has chosen to use the word that means breath as well as spirit that means breeze as well as spirit that means wind as well as spirit to identify who he is in our lives. Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus. And he said, the spirit goes where it will, just like the wind. That was a play on the very word for spirit. So I just wanted us to use that because maybe the Lord himself is just reminding us here I'm present as that uh, light breeze moves among us. Think about the presence of the Lord. Well, we're going to start a series. There are 15 psalms. They're called Psalms of Ascent, which means going up. And these psalms are associated with the ascent that the people made annually to Jerusalem and to the temple of the Lord. And they, these 15 psalms begin with Psalm 120 and they march right through to 134, Psalm 134. Each psalm begins with the, the very words, psalm or song of ascent. We don't know although all of the ideas apply, but we don't know how the first Psalms of, of Ascent came about. In other words, did a pilgrim that lived in a far off land make that pilgrimage to Jerusalem all the while ascending? In fact, everywhere in your New Testament, when it talks about going to the holy city, going to Jerusalem or the temple, it'll say going up. It doesn't matter whether they started north or south. Unlike California, if you're going to the temple, you're going up. And there is actually a bit of ascent. It's one of the highest peaks in the Holy Land. But the real thrust is that you're ascending unto the Lord. So whether they were returning from exile or when they were dispersed as a people and they were living in foreign lands, they were the immigrants, the foreigners, the alien sojourners. And when they were able, they would make that pilgrimage to Jerusalem. In fact, in Luke chapter 2, verses 42 through 52, when Jesus was 12, if we read that, it begins by telling us that his parents annually made a pilgrimage. They made an ascent. They sang these psalms that we will be looking at in the weeks ahead. 
And Jesus at 12 went with them to the holy city. And when they went home, when they made that return journey to where they lived, which actually was north and up in the Holy Land, up in the, pro the area of Galilee, they couldn't find Jesus and they had to return. Remember that story? And where did they find Jesus? In the temple. And his parents were unnerved by the fact they couldn't find him. They were really deeply worried about him. They kind of chastised him like we would. Don't you know how, how worried you had me? And Jesus said, I'm surprised you didn't know where to find me. I mean, this is where I'd be in my father's house. So in a sense, I want us to have that spirit as we enter a pilgrimage. In fact, the book of Hebrews, the entire book of Hebrews, I believe is in a sense drawing the reader on a pilgrimage. And it's a spiritual one, but toward the end, when he gets to chapter 11, he says, you know, we're joining the heroes of faith, the patriarchs, matriarchs, the Old Testament heroes of faith. And he tells us about them in chapter 11, but in that process, he says in 11, verse 13, 14, 15, and 16, he says, they were foreigners and strangers on earth looking for their homeland. And then in verse 15 and 16, he continues and he adds, in fact, and this is important to note because this is the part of a pilgrimage. This is the part of being a sojourner. He says, in fact, if they had been thinking of the land they'd left, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they long for one much better, a heavenly one. In other words, he's saying, we, although we live here, we may be citizens of this state, this country, and no other, and not want any other. He says, like them, this is not our homeland. And in a sense, we're on a pilgrimage in life. And sometimes we lose sight of that. This series in the Psalms will give us an opportunity to attune ourselves to the true pilgrimage of our lives. In fact, as First Peter said in 2.9, in this, so to speak, pilgrimage, he says... He says that we are headed toward our true homeland, which God has prepared for us. Old Testament, New Testament believers, if you will. And he says, we are a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people of his own. that we may proclaim the virtues of Christ who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So when the writer of Hebrews makes this argument about Jesus Christ being the better way, the superior one, the better priest, the better everything, it is in him then that we have 
found our homeland, that we have a new Jerusalem, a true city, a true temple that we approach and live for and seek as pilgrims. Therefore, he went on to write in chapter 12, and you have this in your, in your handout, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition for sinners. I know he's, yeah, that's us. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding gut, blood. And you have completely forgotten his word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son, his child. It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, as though as they thought best. But God disciplines us for good, in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single mill sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Later, as you know, 
When he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. You've not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, not to darkness, gloom, and storm, not to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them because they could not bear what he was commanding. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You see the pilgrimage? You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The words, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, things created, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. And so worship God, excuse me, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should, not, should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. 
What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. So you guys get to sit down and I've got to stand up. It's a, kind of a raw deal. Good morning, good morning. Hey, we're in Psalm 120. As I mentioned, if you have the handout, it's printed there. I'd like to read it to us. This uh, opening psalm is intensely personal. So we should be able to, in some way, identify with it. You know, it helps, I think, to imagine uh, a real flesh and blood human being, just like you and me, kind of pushed to putting thoughts and feelings, aspirations, fears, coming right out of this psalmist's, this pilgrim's spiritual life. I don't know if you've ever done something like that. You've been so moved by something. Maybe it was a, a relationship with a girl or a guy. Maybe it was a dear friendship. Or maybe it did come out of those initial days in which you had turned your life to the Lord and the Lord was really everything, you know? Everything. And we express things in our hearts, in our minds, but sometimes we actually take pen or pencil in hand and, and we put it to paper. And that's what this psalmist did. When he did it, where he was when he did it, we really don't know. In verses 5 and 6, he says, I woe. That we don't talk like that, you know. Or maybe you've, at least you've heard, woe is me. Uh, what's that mean? You know, it means I'm so sad. I'm filled with sorrow. I'm not in a great place right now. I'm overwhelmed by things. I'm distressed. Distressed means I've just got all kinds of stuff taking control of my life. And I feel like I'm a bystander in my own skin, looking on to all this stuff that's happening to me and in a way being tossed and roiled by waves and rushing waters. I'm fighting to keep my head above water. I'm fighting to make it to shore. He says that he's from Meshach and Kedar. He says he sojourns. Sojourn is kind of a technical word. We don't use it so much these days, or I don't hear it much. But it means to be kind of like a person who lives out of big tents. In fact, if you go to the Holy Land, even today, and you're driving through the Shephelah or the lowlands in their rolling hills, you can see up against the hills tent cities, shanties, shacks, and their flocks. And they move sometimes with, you know, I mean, they're not... They're bound to move somewhere where there's water, 
but they don't put down roots like we do and establish clans and so forth. They tend to move together with their flocks, with the weather, with the provision that the land offers. And so, yes, when Jews were scattered, some of them, whether this pilgrim was born in a foreign land, if he's a second generation person, but this word, reference to Meshech and Kedar or Kedar, those are references to the fact that that these are kind of places known for rough, rude, godless peoples. And sometimes you live among peoples that are so different than you. They have no interest in God. In fact, some of us, if not all of us, I know we should be, we should be aliens even in our own country because it's really godless. I know at one time we thought it was Christian, but it is no longer. And so it becomes increasingly a foreign place to us. It increasingly makes us feel foreign in our own land of birth especially as we grow closer and deeper and as we make a pilgrimage closer and closer to the Lord. We should feel that that's our homeland. That's our true city. That's our new Jerusalem. And it is an ascent. And that's what we're getting a picture of in even this song. Our pilgrim longs to be among God's people, a people of peace, a people of shalom. He's a foreigner, as I said. And when he says woe, that's really striking because do you know how many Psalms there are in what we call the book of Psalms? 150. And this is the only Psalm with the word woe. Why is it the first psalm of these 15 psalms? I think it was an appropriate choice by those who organized these psalms together to, to start it off because this person speaks, even if it's metaphorically, of being in a foreign place, longing to be among the people of God, longing to return and go home to his native land, his true city, and be close to the Lord in his temple. So let me read it to us. A song of ascents. In my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you? And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, or I'm committed to peace. I am a peaceable person. 
I am a man, I am a woman of peace, but when I speak, they are at war. You know, he says, uh, in my distress, I called. That's the past tense. So he is referring to God answering past prayer when he opens what he writes down. He's really thankful that God answers his prayer. And then he begins to tell us and to reflect upon what now presently distresses him. And what he tells us is a deceitful tongue, lying lips. We live, he tells us, in my world, there are people that are deceitful and lying all the time. That's what he says. And you know what? That reminds us that that's our world too. I know it's very familiar. I know it's comfortable, but it is our world, and it is a world of deceit. It is a world of lying lips. Here are some things I want to turn to, turn away from, because that's what a pilgrim does, is turn away from a world that is not one that he wants to deepen his life in. So he characterizes this neighbor. It could be more than one. It could be the whole society. But he says, I want to turn away from this, Lord. I want you to deliver me. I need to be rescued from lying lips. You know, we grow in our faith when we ask God for things. Um, not just things we want, but when we yearn for things that God wants us to want. But no matter what you ask for of the Lord, when you ask the Lord for help, when you come to the Lord with petition for help, when you ask the Lord to change us or whatever your prayer is, it's so important to wait for the Lord's response and then to credit the Lord. Our words in English, wait and hope, are the same word in Hebrew. Isn't that interesting? But when you think about it, wait, waiting is hoping. Waiting is expecting. When you give up and run off in a new direction, or turn to another savior or another helper, you're not hoping, you're not waiting on the Lord. But waiting is expecting, and waiting is an expression of deep faith. It's focusing on the Lord, and that's what this psalmist, this pilgrim, our pilgrim here in chapter 120 of the Psalms is doing. Our petitions our prayers are perfected when we wait and hope because we expect God to listen. We perfect that prayer. We give God credit with thanksgiving. That's perfect.
that's perfecting our faith. In verses 2 through 4, he says, Rescue me from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. And he's obviously referring to ill treatment by others, but what it is, we don't know. For example, it could be that they characterize him with lies, with untruths, with slander, even to his face in a very belittling, I'm superior, you're inferior way. Have you ever been treated that way? Have you been treated that way at school? Who hasn't? That's fooling. This is real life. Can you remember what it felt like to be treated that way? As though you didn't matter, you didn't, you don't count. You're belittled, you're the butt of a joke. And you hear what they're saying about you, but what they're saying to you about you, you're saying, that's not true. That's a lie. That's slander. That's exaggeration to find fault and beat me up and make fun of me. That's what he's talking about. We can identify with this guy. We've experienced this. We know how it feels. It may be that someone made false promises. Someone entered into a deal. Listen, let's, let's become partners in a business venture. Or I'll buy your product for such and such a price. These are the kinds of things that they would enter into. And this person, this neighbor, dirty deals our psalmist. In other words, cheats him. Breaks his word. Says he'll pay a certain price and then doesn't pay it. That's what he's talking This is what this means. A deceitful tongue, lying lips. You present one face, but you do another. And this is what he's contending with. People of this caliber are all around him. He wants to be a fair and honest man. He wants to speak truth. He wants to be dependable and reliable. He wants to be a man of character. But he's surrounded by people who take advantage of him and misrepresent him and mistreat him. And we can identify with that. We don't like it either. But boy, when you are a victim of it and you have no recourse, you cry out to the Lord, rescue me. Help me, Lord. I have no one to turn to. You know, when I say that, it just sounds wrong because I believe this pilgrim turned to the Lord first and didn't really want to turn to anyone else because there's no one better to whom he should turn. It's possible they threaten and mistreat him and bully him. 
but his prayer reminds us of the world we live in, what it is actually like, a world breathing with lies. It's sickening to me. It's nauseating if you become aware of it. We become so conditioned to accept it. And the scary part is, is sometimes we actually enter into it without reservation or compunction or regret. In fact, everybody's doing it, so we start doing it. We start fudging and lying and misrepresenting ourselves. People that we want to build trust with, we show no trust. And we'll continue if we can get away with it. And I say we because I know about this. I'm just like you. I'm not talking about somebody else. We're all this way. We can just be more or less. We can be comfortable or we can be pilgrims. We can say, I'm tired of this and I'm moving on. I'm moving toward the Lord. I'm on a pilgrimage to a new city, a new Jerusalem, a new temple of God in Christ. One he built, built of his apostles, built on the generations of brothers and sisters in Christ in previous generations. That is my heritage. That is my rooting. Not this world. Unless you say that's how you get ahead in this world. You just got to go along to get along. Rescue me, Lord, from this lying world full of deceptive people and deception. Rescue me, Lord, from advertisement lies claiming to know me and what I need and what I desire. Rescue me from entertainment lies promising me a cheap way to true joy. Rescue me, Lord, from political lies smoozing me with promises of their power and morality. Rescue me, Lord, from therapeutic lies advising me how to live a guilt-free life of happy success. Rescue me, Lord, from know-it-all lies preaching to me the good life without any mention of Jesus Christ. Rescue me from friends' lies convincing me problems are always the fault of others and not me. Rescue me from demagogue lies offering me the quick fix, the easy way out, the sure success, the path of no suffering. Rescue me from cultural lies wooing me to crown my happiness as life's chief goal and purpose. Rescue me from the myth I will always get another chance and have another day. I'm sick of hearing that because it's not true. 
It's not the truth in Jesus Christ. It's not the true church. It's not the people of God that put him at the center of life, at the center of church, at the center of the meaning of life. The psalmist says in verse 3, What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? It's a really odd verse with odd words. It's important to understand that underneath it is an oath. The oath we even find in 1 Samuel 3.17. It says, when we're trying to get someone to trust us or believe us, believe you me, and then we may invoke an oath. And in this case, it would be, may it be done to me and more besides if I do not fulfill this. May it be done to me and more besides. And you say, wow, you're putting a lot on the line. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to believe you. And there's all kinds of ways you can use that. And that's what he's referring to. You see that oath formula there. What will be added to you? What more will be done to you? In other words, when you break an oath, you invoke the penalty of that oath. So what do you swear by? We don't do that kind of thing these days, you know. But they did a lot back then. Remember Jesus when he said, don't make oaths, yet let your yes be yes, your no be no. Don't swear by the, this or that, heaven, earth. They used to swear and make oaths by almost anything. And so he says in verse 3, What more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? And he gives us an answer. I don't know what, what the oath was, what the situation was. He doesn't tell us. Was it a promise made to him, our pilgrim, in a business deal? And the deceitful tongue, you know, how would you like to be called deceitful tongue? You have to think of a person there. Yeah, yeah there's deceitful tongue over there. <laughs> Old deceitful tongue. That's the way he talks about this, this person to the Lord. What's going to be done with you, deceitful tongue? So, so he says, uh, did, did deceitful tongue break a promise? Or did deceitful tongue swear with a threat such as, um, you know, you, you outsider, get out of my sight. I don't ever want to see you again. I hate your guts. You don't belong here. You don't deserve to be here. And I'm going to destroy you if it's the last thing I do. And then he says something like, may it be done to me and more. If it isn't true, if I don't carry it out, if I don't fulfill it, you see, that's really sealing a sense of your hatred. So our pilgrim echoes the oath formula in an open question before the Lord as if the deceitful tongue stands with him before the Lord. It matters not whether the deceitful tongue swore by another deity or not. Because if he's in a, in a pagan land, 
where they don't even believe in the one true God, they might believe in many gods. They might swear by anything. But the point is, is that to the psalmist, there is only one God. And he figures anyone who makes an oath has to own up to it if they defy it to the one true God. And so that's why he talks to him that way in verse 3. And here's how he answers. A sharp arrow or sharp arrows of a warrior with glowing coals of the broom tree. Isn't that a cool way to talk? I bet everybody would perk up at a party if you talked like that. The glowing, you know, a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of a broom tree. Just kind of log that for a special occasion. Pull that out. You know, things are getting a little boring in this conversation. Hey, the warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of a broom tree. What? What he's talking about, though, and even Bedouins today, they make their best charcoal out of the roots of broom trees. And what he's picturing here is a much higher power, a greater avenger. You know, today we get pulled into court. Imagine a court scene. Who's going to be your avenger? That's what they call the defense lawyer. Someone who will stand up for you, a counselor, an advocate. He's talking to God as his advocate, his avenger. Do you have a good lawyer? You know, you need so much money to get justice. Right? Walk a straight line, friends, loved ones. Because if you get hauled into court by someone who's more powerful, you'll get a swift dose of justice that you do not consider justice. This is justice here because the avenger is the Lord. He's a warrior. His arrows are very sharp. They don't bounce off you. They pierce you because they have been forged in the hot, glowing fires of coals from the broom tree. That's what he's saying. And then he says to the Lord, Lord, I'm peaceable. I'm a peacemaker. I'm not guilty in this. I sought to make peace. But when I talk peace, they talk war. This is pretty relevant stuff, don't you think? Seems really relevant. Seems like our psalmist is really familiar to us when you know what he's talking about. He's talking about life in 2020, life in a pandemic, life lived in large part on social media. And what he's talking about is very real to our lives. Are we people of peace? Do we have a case 
with the true Avenger? Could we take our case of innocence, of being peaceable, of being godly, and God would step up and say, I'll take that case. You're a righteous person. You're a just person. You're not a person of lying lips. You're not a person of deceit. You have been wronged. You haven't brought this on yourself. You haven't gotten down in the gutter with these lying people and these lying ways. You are not cloaked and coated in this. This is a, this is a song for our time. This is, where the, this is where the pilgrimage begins and ends because it doesn't go any further if we aren't willing to be people of truth, God's truth. People of trust, God's trust. People of innocence and purity and holiness, God's innocence, purity, and holiness, that he might avenge us because vengeance is the Lord's. So heap hot coals on their head with God's love. It says that in the Old and the New Testament. You want to make them squirm? Do it with God's love. Paul wrote, faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, expectant, waiting, hope, and love. And love, not just one of three, the greatest of three. Is 1 Corinthians just for marriages, just for weddings? Or is it for disciples? Is it the raw meat of the Christian faith, this love of which, Jesus, of, of which Paul spoke of it in 1 Corinthians 13? It is. It's not something tucked away in our back pocket or I pull it out of my wallet and show a picture or pull out my credit card when I need it. This is the stuff of our lives. And it's the beginning of the pilgrimage because there is no deception, no lying lips in love. There is peace in love. There is the spirit in love because Jesus Christ won our lives he paid for our lives with his blood, which was not just blood money, it was love money. He wants us to be loving people. That's how he won our hearts. Why should we take up some other means? Why should we throw that which won us? Why should we throw that aside as though it, there's something more important I can do? I love you. I preach to myself this way, by the way. I do a lot of screaming at me. God bless you.